the house next door, the Larches, has recently been taken by a stranger. To Caroline's extreme annoyance, she has not been able to find out anything about him, except that he is a foreigner. The intelligence corps has proved a broken reed. Presumably the man has milk and vegetables and joints of meat and occasional whitings just like everybody else, but none of the people who make it their business to supply these things seem to have acquired any information. His name apparently is Mr. Poirot, a name which conveys an odd feeling of unreality. The one thing we do know about him is that he is interested in the growing of vegetable marrows. But that is certainly not the sort of information that Caroline is after. She wants to know where he comes from, what he does, whether he is married, what his wife was or is like, whether he has children, what his mother's maiden name was, and so on. Somebody very like Caroline must have invented the questions on passports, I think. My dear Caroline, I said, there's no doubt at all about what the man's profession has been. He's a retired hairdresser. Look at that mustache of his. Hello, and welcome to The Overleaf. My name's Sam Tornio, and this is the podcast where I just talk to you for a bit about what I've been reading. I will be citing a handful of scholarly works in this episode, links for all of which you will find listed in the episode details. The quote you just heard is from Agatha Christie's The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. The novel is a classic whodunit set in the fictional English village of King's Abbot and showcasing, for the third time, the eccentric, mustachioed Belgian detective Hercule Poirot. King's Abbot lies tucked away somewhere between London and Liverpool. It is a village much like any other village, explains local Dr. James Shepard, the narrator of the murder of Roger Ackroyd. Its most notable feature would probably be its large railway station, or perhaps its two rival general stores. But the real lifeblood of the village, Dr. Shepard tells us, is gossip. The two main sources of local intrigue are the houses of King's Paddock and Fernley Park, with addiction, profligacy, blackmail, and infidelity passing between them like pollen in springtime. But I'll set those details aside for now, as the plot of what was Agatha Christie's sixth novel does not really concern us right now, particularly as the denouement includes what in 1926 was seen to be a rather innovative twist, one which I reckon will still offer most readers a pleasant surprise. I won't risk spoiling that here by delving too deeply into the substance of the case. Instead, I'd like for you to consider the inhabitants of King's Abbot. They are a cast of characters who, as George Grella points out in his essay, Murder and Manners, resemble those populating other fictional English villages, such as the Highbury of Jane Austen's Emma, or George Eliot's eponymous Middlemarch, Here there is usually at least one wealthy, rubicund father, an overbearing mother, a prodigal son, an indecisive ingenue, 
a retired military man, and maybe a few suspicious servants. There are the professional men, like our narrator, Dr. Shepard, and nearly always a vicar, although whoever this might be is completely left out of this story. And since it's a meat and potatoes whodunit in our case, we of course have a handful of hapless lawmen, and naturally, a brilliant sleuth. But the character on whom I'd like to focus your attention for the moment is none of these. In Emma, this particular type of character goes by the name of Miss Bates. In Middlemarch, Mrs. Cadwallader. And in King's Abbot, she is Dr. Shepard's older, unmarried sister and housemate, Caroline. These are all older women, usually unmarried, who spend most of their time maintaining the many channels of gossip in their respective communities. They are known traditionally, disparagingly, as old maids or spinsters. Historically, gossip and fiction has been associated with those on the fringes of society, characters who lack real power. In her essay, Gossip and Literary Narrative, Blakey Vermeule describes how gossip and fiction tends to be seen as womanish, low, slavish, mean. In The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, our narrator, Dr. Shepard, does tend to be rather contemptuous of his sister's ability to gather information through what he's dubbed her intelligence corps of servants and tradesmen. And he also isn't very kind about how she then spreads this information among the other middle-aged women of King's Abbot, whom he vilifies as her quote-unquote cronies. But as far as fictional gossips go, Caroline is portrayed rather positively. She is, firstly, positioned quite close to the center of the action, as the narrator's sister. But more importantly, she's positioned literally next door to the hero of the story. You see, the shepherds have a new neighbor, and he is none other than the renowned Hercule Poirot. At the beginning of the novel, he is living under an assumed name, Mr. Poirot, the daftness of which I find hard to reconcile with Poirot's sharp intellect, as though no one would be able to figure out who he really was. Before the shepherds learn their neighbor's true identity, they speculate, as you heard in the quote at the beginning of the show, about who this funny little man next door might be. Or rather, Dr. Shepard speculates, supposing this man to be a hairdresser due to his finely wrought mustache. Caroline, on the other hand, doesn't seem ready to make inferences at this point but appears to be mobilizing a battalion of questions she'd like to have answered about the man. Where he comes from, what he does, whether he's married, etc. It's striking to me how meticulous, indeed methodical, Caroline's curiosity is. She isn't looking for the general idea. She's looking for the whole picture. She actually sounds more like a detective here than a gossip. There's this implication that she really knows what to look for, that she's spent enough time observing and mulling over details to know, just as you expect a detective might, that some of the most profound revelations are to be uncovered in what at first glance appear to be the most trivial of places. It is certainly no accident on Christie's part that immediately after she has painted Caroline as an amateur detective, that the actual detective of the story is mischaracterized as a hairdresser. Precisely the sort of marginal character in a detective narrative that one might expect to be portrayed as a gossip. It is perhaps this mischaracterization of Dr. Shepard's that I find most fascinating. Because it suggests that Christie is not simply asking us to consider how a spinster might be like a detective, 
but also how a detective might be like a spinster. How the hero at the center of the narrative might be not all that different from the characters who fill the margins. Once Poirot's identity is fully out in the open, and he agrees to help solve Roger Ackroyd's murder, Dr. Shepard quickly becomes a kind of Dr. Watson to Poirot's homes, always by his side, but never quite getting it right. Caroline, however, becomes something else, not a sidekick, but a protege. Her detective instincts, as Dr. Shepard calls them, are often partially and sometimes wholly correct, and her extensive knowledge of the local community proves instrumental to Poirot's cracking of the case. Caroline's sustained involvement as a detective in her own right seems to me much more than a narrative device. Christie really wants to keep us considering the overlap between the character of the spinster and the character of the sleuth. And as the narrative develops, it becomes more and more evident just how similar the activities of a distinguished detective and a middle-aged gossip are. Both Poirot and Caroline eavesdrop. Both manipulate conversations to get people to say or do what they want. Both speculate from incomplete information, often pursuing unpopular, seemingly absurd leads. And they're both outsiders to some extent. Though supported by her brother, Caroline is not a clear member of the middle class or married set, nor is she tied to the aristocracy. Similarly, Poirot, though accepted as cultured and celebrated for his achievements, is nonetheless somewhat suspiciously unmarried, markedly foreign, and little. Yet the disarming effect of their peripheral status permits them privileged access to situations unavailable to other characters. How could an elderly, eccentric Belgian or a chatty old spinster do any real harm? Yet despite Poirot and Caroline's similar epistemic advantages, Christie is careful to keep Caroline from ever eclipsing the storied detective. Given Poirot's experience and training, this is perhaps only logical. But I think there is something else going on here. In his book Fiction, Crime, and Empire, John Thompson argues that the modern detective narrative is actually a quote-unquote fantasy of power in which the surveillance of the modern state is undermined by the superior surveillance, those powers of observation, of the detective, where the empirical and institutional methods of scientific inquiry are surpassed by the ability of the detective to reason. As Thompson writes in the fantasy narrative of the ingenious detective, quote, rationalism is repeatedly valorized over the narrow values of the police, end quote. And this is overwhelmingly a male fantasy of power. Such an oppositional stance in relation to authority requires the privilege and the agency to boldly reject the establishment, yet also be accepted by this same establishment as a kind of rugged vigilante. For the detective to appear aligned in any way with a female character, like a spinster, is to risk being emasculated, dismissed, marginalized. This might be why misogyny is so prevalent in canonical detective fiction, from the Sherlock Holmes stories to the hard-boiled noir novel. And we see this anxiety of emasculation in the murder of Roger Ackroyd, when Poirot 
despite referring to Caroline as an expert, nonetheless disregards her methods in a private conversation with Dr. Shepard as haphazard, mere intuition. This moment feels quite jarring, given how in sync Caroline and Poirot otherwise appear to be. It's hard to see how Caroline's methodology is any more haphazard than Poirot's. Instead, it feels like Christie is toying with the urge to give Caroline some of the limelight, but at the last moment backs off. To some degree, she also seems to be dialing back Poirot's quirks with this dismissal of Caroline. Like Sherlock Holmes before him, Poirot is eccentric. But whereas Holmes' oddness tends to run cold and misanthropic, Poirot comes across as rather camp, his gender just shy of being fluid. And he often shows a humanist, almost maternal concern for others, particularly women in trouble, or women like Caroline, on the margins. Christie is taking a real formal risk with Poirot. And when push comes to shove, she airs more conservative, deciding that Poirot's epistemic supremacy though tinged with more effeminate flourishes, must at the end of the day be seen as the solitary effort of a fundamentally male character in order to be taken seriously by her contemporary readership. If in this early novel, Christie sidesteps a wholesale blurring of the line between the detective and the gossip, she later indulges in such mad science through the character of Miss Marple a fully realized spinster sleuth. The name itself is a kind of liberation, her title of singledom proudly declaring itself, ringing with alliteration and just enough sibilance to hint at what she's capable of, Miss Marple. Knitting away quietly in her cozy village cottage, Marple at first glance appears considerably more marginal and harmless than either Poirot or Caroline. But Christie flips the script entirely, quite explicitly presenting Marple as superior to the inspectors, constables, and sergeants who bop around her narratives. Christie repeatedly emphasizes Marple's keen intellect and ability to manage her local network of surveillance, as well as her ability to apply her knowledge of social networks to the wider world. In the novel, A Murder is Announced. Retired Scotland Yard Commissioner Sir Henry Clithering declares Marple to be the finest detective God ever made. Full stop. Scholarship naturally abounds. In their book Reflecting on Miss Marple, Marion Shaw and Sabine Vanneker make the insight that, quote, it is Christie's harnessing of the spinster's potential as both fearsome oddity and moral force to the structures and conventions of detective fiction that makes the Marple stories such satisfying examples of the genre." End quote. This observation by Shaw and Vanneker that Miss Marple functions as a moral force is worth unpacking. As we've seen, the archetypal masculine detective's power stems from their privileged detachment from society, their freedom to reject the establishment with a great degree of impunity. But detachment, even privileged detachment, has its burdens. Poirot, expatriate celebrity, will never return to King's Abbot. Marple, on the other hand, is embedded in her community of St. Mary Mead. 
Having solved a case, she dissolves back into her web at once its powerful center and marginal other. Here is a kind of freedom and peace of mind unavailable to her male counterparts. The Poirots and the Holmeses are not just men, but white, well-to-do, educated members of the elite. No matter how much they reject society, they are also protected by it and thus have a substantial stake in upholding the status quo. Even the rougher around the edges offshoots of the classic masculine detective type, the James Bonds and Philip Marlowe's and Jake Giddis's always return to the fold, even when they've lost faith, even when they don't recognize the world they're returning to. To be sure, Marple too has her stake in the status quo, but unlike her male counterparts, she doesn't seem to be deluded into thinking she can somehow exist outside of society, and she focuses instead on carving out her place within it. I find Poirot's solitude especially bleak. If you heard the previous episode, you may see some of Stefan Zweig in the character of Poirot, an exiled, interwar European watching his homeland disintegrate. He stands on the sidelines, helpless to do anything but identify the next murderer. It is notable that Poirot tends to let his culprits go free. And there are echoes of other solitary masculine archetypes in the detective. Figures like the Knight Errant, Milton's Lucifer, the cowboy, the superhero, but also the lone wolf, the active shooter. As we near reality, the fantasy turns perverse, and it goes beyond archetypes, beyond masculinity. There are echoes in those who reject climate science or the theory of evolution, in anti-vaccination activists, extremists, terrorists, conspiracy theorists, or those gathered outside a governor's mansion during a pandemic calling for the lockdown to be lifted, or those who decide to take the law into their own hands and end up killing innocent people. Perhaps what's really at the root of this fantasy of the extraordinary detective is just ordinary resentment, the resentment of either people with the same level of privilege as a Poirot, or a Holmes, or a Marple, but also, and maybe even more so, those with merely the memory or expectation of privilege, who fear being ignored, marginalized, dismissed. When your version of the world is being challenged or revealed to be false, it's much easier to double down than to accept the harshness of reality. But simplifying the world is a false economy. Notions of truth become murky amid desperation. Facts and evidence conflate with beliefs and identity. When you attempt to play the part of the all-knowing detective in the real world, you usually don't come across as a discerning, compassionate borrow, but as a kind of doomed and bitter Sisyphus, eternally trying to convince the world of your enlightenment, despite being knocked back down again and again by each crushing boulder of evidence to the contrary. Such a task is demoralizing enough for someone like Poirot, who is, in fact, always or nearly always right. In the real world, you eventually burn out or act out. 
In the postmodern era following Christie, many writers, Borges, Pynchon, Nabokov, to name just a few, attempted to really dissect the fantasy of the ingenious detective, to expose the slipperiness beneath, revealing the extent to which context and ethical paradigms matter as much as facts. A certain humility is actually written into the DNA of the detective archetype. Edgar Allan Poe, who invented the modern detective with his Auguste Dupin, tended to avoid the tidiness of later detective fiction, and in at least one case left the reader wondering exactly what had occurred. And a common argument is that the enduring popularity of the whodunit in the more tidy style of Christie is a result of a popular dilution of this initial messiness of the Dupont stories, suggesting perhaps a general aversion by most readers to the serious explorations of truth lurking just below the surface of the detective narrative, a desire to take the easy way out. But even in the murder of Roger Ackroyd, a rather orthodox whodunit, we have seen how the dynamic between Caroline and Poirot raises fundamental questions about where knowledge comes from and how it relates to power and identity. David Beggett also observes a level of epistemological seriousness in Sherlock Holmes and provides some thoughts on this in his essay, Sherlock Holmes, Epistemologist. The popular whodunit may provide the satisfaction of everything falling into place in the end, but it also shows a real willingness by the general public to engage in this sort of philosophical reflection, to interrogate the process of seeking knowledge. In the murder of Roger Ackroyd, our spinster sleuth in the making Caroline may always be a step behind the great Poirot, but I wonder if this might not be a mercy on Christie's part. Caroline is us, the reader, the citizen, the individual who must sort out the truth from the gossip. But unlike the reader, what in the end will matter to Caroline is the solution to the murder, not the spectacle of the investigation, because it will allow her and her community to heal, to get on with the business of life. When you set aside all that supposed genius, all that flair and hubris, what remains is the simple truth, that being the ever incandescent individual at the spotlit center of the circus ultimately means being alone. That's all for this episode of The Overleaf. Join me next time for a little look at Cesar Vallejo's Stumble Between Two Stars. Don't forget that all scholarly works mentioned in this episode are linked in the details. Except for the Chopin Etude, Opus 25 and A-flat major, performed by Edward Neiman, and that bluesy, swaggering double bass line performed by El Zozo, both of which appear under a Creative Commons license and were sourced from museopen.org and freesound.org, respectively, all audio and music in this episode was created in-house by The Overleaf. If you enjoyed listening... 
please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and maybe give us a rating. Goodbye for now.